Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, we've already had many guests on our show talking about the 2008 financial crises and financial regulations, both from the policymaking side, like former New York President Bill Dudley, CFTC Commissioner Dan Berkowitz, uh, as well as scholars like Adam Tews. But we haven't talked to anybody from the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Uh, how does the agency work? What role does it play um, in the past decade shaping up uh, new financial regulations in the aftermath of the crises? And uh, what was the agency capable of reinventing itself for, for change? Those are the, some of the questions we'll be touching on today. Uh, here in the studio with me to discuss those issues is Mr. Norm Champ. He was the director of the Division of Investment Management at the SEC and now a partner at law firm um, Kirkland & Ellis. He's currently... Um, certainly one of the most authoritative voices out there that can provide us a rare account of the SEC uh, and his thoughts on the financial system today. Uh, we'd like to especially thank Princeton's Benham Center for Finance for connecting us with Mr. Champ. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Champ. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you're giving a talk today at the Benham Center uh, titled, When Less is More, Does SEC Deregulation Help or Hurt U.S. Financial Markets? So why don't we just start with your talk? What will you be uh, presenting to the audience today? So it's really a two-year report card about the Trump administration's efforts to revive U.S. capital markets. So if you think of two years ago, the administration comes in with a very much a pro-capital formation agenda. And one of the big things that President Trump and his team had been hoping for was to restore some of the health of initial public offerings in the U.S. financial markets. So remember, U.S. financial markets are still the premier capital-raising device in the world. Those markets have given the United States growth over the last 240 years that is unparalleled, in, frankly, in human history, but certainly in that time around the world. However, those markets have been under attack over the last, particularly over the last 10 years. Uh, if you think about the fact that we have far fewer public companies now, so we have about half the public companies that we had 20 years ago, we are averaging about half of the initial public offerings for year, per year that we averaged before the year 2000. So our capital markets are, have fewer companies and we're having less initial public offerings. So. That's a concern because the vast majority of American households can only invest in public securities like stocks and bonds. And Americans invest in those securities primarily through mutual funds, which I used to regulate at the SEC. And they're investing in those mutual funds for savings, for retirement, for their children's education, for their goals, home ownership, what have you. To the extent we have our capital markets slimming down, that's not good for the vast majority of Americans. It's also not for good for the American economy because that capital engine of our markets is a huge driver of U.S. growth. Uh, so talk today is essentially the administration's goal of getting our markets back on track. Uh, and here we are two years in. How are they doing? Um, you know, and in the talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about initial public offerings are certainly up, but there are lots of other headwinds out there around initial public offerings. So they're not up to the levels that we need to get them back to. And then in the third part of the talk, I go through what are some of the policy issues we might see coming up. So both the two years remaining in this, you know, minimum two years remaining in this administration, uh, and then ultimately if we have the pendulum swing back, what are some of the other policy ideas that are going to be on the table? 
So overall, are you saying that it's doing better than before, but we still see headwind? Yeah. So U.S. markets. So we got to remember that U.S. markets are the envy of the world. So when you are uh, a senior officer at the Securities and Exchange Commission, which I was, you're not allowed to take anything of value from anyone. You know, no gifts, no this, no that. Right. There's an exception written into federal law, which is that non-U.S. governments are allowed to pay all the expenses for SEC officials to fly to non-U.S. countries and to help those non-U.S. countries think about their markets, develop their regulations, develop their financial products. While I was at the SEC, I went all over the world doing that, and there's people who basically spend all their time doing that. The reason is that other countries want the kind of markets we have. You know, good, stable, deep markets where you can raise capital are an indicator of a stable society. They tend to follow democracies, uh, and they are engines of growth. So non-U.S. governments are willing to pay for people from the SEC to go all over and try to help establish markets. Similarly, there are competitors now. London and Hong Kong, you know, they want to have deep markets as well. It's cheaper to go public in those countries than it is here, just based on straight-out listing fees. Also, we have much more regulation than anyone else, so that's very costly. We have a lot of lawsuits against public companies. So we have headwinds in our markets. And one thing that I'm really trying to emphasize to people is, look, we cannot take the primacy of our financial markets for granted. Just like everything else, they need to be tended and cared for. I think the administration's off to a great start, but there are lots of other things that need to be done. So, so why don't we just start with your experience at the SEC? You were mentioned uh, you were one of the senior officers there. Uh, you were the director of the Division of Investment Management. You talked about how you uh, regulated mutual funds, oversaw a variety of market participants, and you also helped enact a series of landmark reforms uh, for SEC. Am I missing out anything? Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your accomplishments there? So yeah, so, no. It's, uh, so you hit some of the highlights. Um, you know, I think I think the way to think about it is that after the crisis, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission took a bigger blow to its reputation than probably any other regulator in Washington. So you might argue that the Federal Reserve should have taken the biggest blow. They have, you know, they had and have squadrons of examiners on site at all the big U.S. banks, right? Crisis came, many of those U.S. banks were in deep trouble. You know, what were those squadrons of regulators doing on site, right? So, but it was really the SEC that took the big hit. The reason was the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme scandal was big news, and the guy had stolen billions of dollars, and the SEC had missed it. And that story kind of captured the imagination. I think there have been, you know, at least two movies that I've seen arising out of it. I'm sh- and then the show Billions, you know, and all this stuff, right? <laughs> um, and so the SEC really got pummeled hard. So <clears throat> having dealt with the SEC my whole career, <clears throat> I wanted to go in and see if we could turn it around. So the first thing I went in to do was to help the exam program. So I was deputy director of the exam program initially in 2010. First thing I did was, you know, we went in to try to help the exam program turn around. Uh, And that had to do with, you know, why do you miss something like Madoff? There was also another big fraud by a guy named Alan Stanford down in Texas. You know, how do you miss those things? What, what, you know, what's the reason for that? And what can we do about it? So first couple of years I was there, we spent time getting in place better procedures within the SEC exam program biggest single thing there was getting a manual in place so that we know how, you know, everyone knows what we're doing, who reports to whom, how are you going to do exams. 
That was super important if you take something like Allen Stanford. So in 1997, the SEC examined Allen Stanford down in Texas. Allen Stanford was running something called a prime bank scheme. I have a bank. It's in Antigua. It's paying 12% interest. Ignore those banks on Main Street here at Nassau Street that say 2% interest, right? I've got a 12% interest bank. There are, of course, no banks paying 12% interest, right? So it's a scam. Um, the SEC guys realized immediately in 1997 that it was a scam. They wrote a report saying it's a scam. But at that point, 1997, they couldn't get anyone interested in investigating him. He had about $200 million under management. They knew he was a scam, and yet they basically wrote a report and put in a file. When he was arrested in February of 2009, right, over 10 years later, he had stolen $20 billion. So another $19.8 billion he had stolen since the SEC realized it was a fraud. So how can something like that happen, right? The way something like that happens is an examiner doesn't know what to do when they find a fraud. They can't get anyone interested, so they file it in the file. Not surprisingly, now the manual says, if you think someone's committing fraud, you have to escalate that all the way to the top of the SEC if need be to get somebody's attention, right? So it was those kind of steps we were taking an exam to try to make sure examiners knew what to do when they found, knew what to do, and then when they found things, knew where to take them. I mean, that was kind of a no-brainer, right? Yeah. I mean, when, when, when you see a fraud scheme, you bring in the lawyers and the investigator, whatever. Mm. Like, the, the, the... Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it was really tough, and I'm probably one of the only people on the planet who's read the entire Bernie Madoff report and the entire Alan Stanford <laughs> report because it was my job. And, you know, what happened was they had a hard time getting lawyers interested because it was supposedly in Antigua. Well, there wasn't anything in, T in Antigua except Alan Stanford used a lot of the proceeds to buy, like, the, the cricket team in Antigua and other stuff. So, but, you know, the fraud was occurring right here in the United States. People were giving him their money and he was stealing it. So that's just an example. When we first went there, we were trying to get the exam division turned around. I think we made a ton of reforms that helped a lot. Uh, and then I became director of the Division of Investment Management that you mentioned. Um, and the main thing there is, yes, overseeing public funds, mutual funds, uh, also private funds, which is what I do now. Uh, and then the biggest single thing we worked on there was reforming money market mutual funds. Uh, money market mutual funds are a little obscure, so we shouldn't spend too much time on this uh, <laughs> podcast on them. But a lot of Americans actually have money in, in money market mutual funds without knowing it. Often it's a like a default account if you have a an account at a big you know Fidelity or Vanguard or somebody. Often your money is going into a money market fund. And during the crisis, there were some real problems with a one in particular, but a couple money market funds. So we did pass some rules to strengthen those funds. Uh, just before we talk a little bit more about the reforms, I want to go back on Alan Stanford case, the Bernie Madoff case, and you were talking. <clears throat> so what's the relation like between uh, regulators and and the, the investors um, that, that you sort of oversee? I mean, is there always a push and pull, uh, cat and mouse type of thing? Well, so, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. One of, you know, we mentioned London and Hong Kong earlier. One of the biggest contrasts between, let's say, UK-based, so Hong Kong and London systems in our system, if you want to go into the investment management business in London or Hong Kong, you have to file a business plan with the regulator, you have to take tests. There's sort of a cost to entry, right? The United States, with the free market system, there is essentially no upfront cost to entry to being regulated to be in the investment management business. You file a form with the government, as long as you haven't been convicted of a crime and certain things, you're on, you're on your way on in business. And then the SEC is charged with examining you after you file that over time to make sure you're 
doing the right thing. So it's interesting you mentioned cat and mouse. Our system is set up to encourage business formation, which is a good thing for the economy and growth. Uh, but then you have the regulator checking up on you. And so and our, our requirements are stricter in some ways than they are in other countries. Um, and so when the regulator comes to check on you, they are looking to see what you've done. So if you think of the SEC, it's about 4,500 people. Around 1,000 plus are examiners and about 1,300, call it, are enforcement attorneys. So really between exam and enforcement, that's half of the SEC. Uh, and their job is to go around and see what's happening in firms and make sure that investors are being, you know, are protected. Um, you know, sometimes it is referred to as cat and mouse. I think that really most firms, and certainly the firms I deal with, they want to comply. They want to do the right thing with their investors. They're not looking for trouble. The SEC actually spends most of its time, most of its time on on real kind of frauds, right, and not reputable businesses. You know, they're they're out there looking at unfortunately people who are trying to scam people. That's that's their main bread and butter. Uh- Will the regulators always be a step behind in that sense? Because you push through reforms, but then the funds, the investors, people who want to commit fraud, they'll always sort of find a way to get around, right? Unfortunately, we've been having frauds probably since you know ancient, <laughs> the beginning of ancient Egypt. Yeah, so so I mean, you're always look. I, I would I'd, I'd put it in two buckets, right? If you really have someone who wants to steal somebody else's money. They're going to lie about everything. They're going to go out and do it. And you're going to have – that's always going to exist. I mean, let's face it. You're never going to stamp it out. Um, then you have a second bucket, which is the vast majority of businesses that are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to make money for their investors, for themselves. You know, One great thing about the investment management industry is it's generally aligned, right? You're the investor. You want the manager to make money on investments, and they want to make money on them. You know, we're all kind of pointing the same way, right? So that's the vast majority of businesses. With them, the SEC is really just kind of looking to make sure they're complying with the rules. And there might be some small issues and things, but you know, usually it's not fraud. But you unfortunately do have this hardcore part of what the SEC is doing that's fraud. And one of the things – actually, it's a challenge about being inside the government at the SEC is I often felt like – that small hardcore fraud bucket, right? You're seeing more of that than anything else, right? So you're kind of wading through the sewer most days, uh, and it's a little hard to then. You have to shift when you're dealing with the rest of the industry, which is 98 plus percent of the industry, because they're not doing that, right? So you there's sort of two hats you have to put on. One is the hardcore fraud people, and then everyone else. Got you. Uh, uh, you played a very key role in SEC's completion of a series of landmark reforms uh, throughout the past decade or so. So how much resistance does the SEC usually face from the industry when you try to pursue those reforms? So it's a great question. You know, policymaking, you know, and your podcast is devoted to policy. Policymaking is an interesting thing because policymaking is driven by so many different stakeholders. One of the things that you really learn when you go to a government agency like the SEC, when you're on the outside, it sounds like, oh, the SEC can do this or do that, right? Well, when you get there, you find that, first of all, let's take the SEC as an example. The president gets to appoint five commissioners to run the SEC. Three are from his party, two from the alternate, you know, the other party. So he gets five appointees at the SEC. Everyone else is civil service, right? And essentially is there, you know, if they want to be pretty much there for good. 
Contrast that with something like the U.S. Treasury. With the United States Treasury, the president gets to appoint the top 340 people at the United States Treasury, right? So when an administration comes in, the Treasury is going to do what the new administration wants to get done, right? There's, those people have been appointed by the president. When you're at the SEC, it's a little different. you got a few presidential appointees. you got a bunch of folks that are career. And so the independent agencies like the SEC, they move at a slower pace, right? They don't turn on a dime. Um, and they, are, they answer to many constituencies. You have the staff that's there. You have people on the Hill in Congress. You have the president. Um, you have the press out there watching what you're doing. You have the financial services industry that you mentioned. So, and, and the financial service industry is not a monolith. You have people who run mutual funds. You have people who run hedge funds. You have people who run private equity funds. You have people who run debt funds. There's a whole spread of who's out there. So policymaking is trying to find the balance among all those stakeholders to find a way forward to address a problem. And I think one of the key things the SEC did post-crisis was say, listen, we are going to use strict economic analysis to make sure we understand if there is a problem and then what are the impacts of trying to fix the problem. And I think that was a great step because when you're making policy, if you just make it on what sounds good, usually it doesn't work out so well. And if you use strict analysis from economists and really weigh the evidence of what's out there, uh, you can come to a better, at least come to making a decision that you're going to know what the consequences are. Uh, and so, for instance, on money market funds, we predicted in making that policy that if you floated the net asset value, again, a little technical for, for you know a podcast, <laughs> but, but we predicted that if you did that, a lot of assets would move from regular money market funds to government money market funds. That's, in fact, what has happened over the years since that rule passed. So again, maybe you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, and there's all sorts of views. But the policy was made knowing what the impact would be. And in fact, that proved to be true. And I think it's very important when you make policy to understand exactly what the impact's going to be. Unfortunately, you see a lot of policy making by wishful thinking, and we want to do this, or this sounds good, or that sounds good. The results of that kind of policymaking are usually unintended consequences that somehow hurt, you know, something that that you're trying to help. And so, I think making policy is very serious business. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort to study the impacts of it. Since we're already on the topic of policymaking, it seems that you're a pretty big advocate for evidence-based uh, analyses. Uh, but there's also people out there saying, you know, financial markets evolve and innovate at such an increasingly complex rate uh, that we need something completely drastic, completely new. Uh, and, and all kinds of scholars propose all kinds of pol policy suggestions. So how, how, how do you, I guess, interact with them, how, uh, consider those proposals? Uh, so <clears throat> I think one thing, so on your evidence point, I think we've got pretty conclusive evidence that strong free market capital markets in this country have driven wealth creation and a standard of living that has never been seen in, in world history. So I think we've got the evidence of the power of markets. Now, I don't disagree that markets are always innovating and always changing. These are some of the smartest people you'll ever encounter, and they are you know always thinking about the next frontier and the next issue. 
I think government needs to step back from that and allow that innovation to happen. Government is never going to make the right prediction of what's going to happen or pick the right technology or pick the right financial product, right? What you want government to do is you want government to set a playbook and a set of rules, right? A ground rules. And in within those ground rules, let people have at it and let them think about what are the best products, what are the best strategies to make money, how can we deepen our markets. I think when government goes beyond making the guardrails and the ground rules, um, that's when we get in trouble because government is not well equipped to pick winners and losers. You know, usually winner. You know, usually they pick losers, and frankly, when government picks among people, it usually picks things that are related to its friends, right? And and so, I think we've got to, if anything, encourage government to step back and allow innovation. Uh, how much of SEC's daily discourse would be sort of about reflecting or predicting the next uh, disruption in policymaking, technolo- technology, or data, or whatever? Yeah. So. Uh, I'm pretty sure, I, th- I talk about it in the book, I think we're pretty much zero for human history on governments predicting crises, right? I mean, governments governments are about kind of steady, you know, jobs and kind of, you know, trying to make some policies and stuff. Governments are not great about looking forward to the next crisis. And I, part of what I argue in, the, in my book, Going Public, is that the only remedy for this is for people to take responsibility for their own individual balance sheets and think about their own finances. And because if you sit around waiting for the government to head off the next crisis, I don't think that's a good strategy. So you want to you want to think about your own net worth and your own balance sheet and make sure you build that. You know, we I think government folks are trying and they mean well, but they just don't have the tools. They're outside the markets, right? The minute you go in there, you're out of the markets, right? And you your knowledge decays. Um, so I don't think we're going to see governments predicting crises. Frankly, I think many people in government don't believe that's their job. Uh, and frankly, they're probably right. Uh, you, we've been talking for a while. I haven't got the chance to bring up your book, uh, Going Public, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis. Uh, so you mentioned in your book uh, and, and in various previous interviews uh, that there, there are no carrots in SEC for those who do a good job uh, because you can't pay people for good performance because there's union regulations, SEC. They, they've never been able to agree on a pay-for-performance uh, sys- system. Um, and similarly, you can't fire anybody because of the civil service uh, rules so people have lifetime uh, employment. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on the bureaucracy. Is it, is it really bad? Uh, how do you transform such a large organization? So I'm a big believer in bad systems, not bad people. So, you know, the vast, vast majority of the people who go to the SEC go there. They want to serve this country. You know, they go there from the right motives. And, and serving this country in those five years at the SEC are certainly, as I talk about in the book, going to be the highlight of my career. And it's it's tremendous to be able to be involved in policymaking at the highest levels of the U.S. government. The problem with the system is exactly you know some of the stuff you identified that I talk about in the book, which is right. There's really no way to reward high performers, and there's no way to you know punish or pay less to people who are low performers. What that creates, unfortunately, is a bit of a of a kind of reversion to the mean, where I I saw over and over again kind of hard people come in, they're all fired up, hard chargers, but you know. 
it, when it's that kind of environment, it tends to kind of sap people's, you know, energy and will to move forward. Um, and so, you know, some of the things we did were really to try to recognize people for their efforts. So we created awards programs, recognition things, right? Because you couldn't do it with money, which is what we have on the outside world. But we tried to have recognition for people. And, you know, it's interesting. Some people want big recognition, right? They want to be in a press release about a big case. Other people don't, but maybe they'd like to be recognized, you know, behind the scenes in a, in a with an award or something. So really tried to create ways to reward people for good effort and for protecting investors. Um, we also had a moment there post-crisis where the union leadership, you know, I, I kind of went in and said, look, the union leadership was here long before we're here. They're going to be long here long after we're here. Um, if we want to get anything done, we have to work with them. So for five years, um, I spoke to union leadership every Tuesday morning, uh, and we went over what was going on. And their examiners were under a great deal of criticism as well for missing Madoff and Stanford. So they had some incentive for change also. And so we really we were able to implement a change program at the SEC, uh, which involves you know going out getting people's perspectives, kind of like consultants do, coming up with change ideas with everyone's ideas, and then figuring out which ones to execute and moving forward. And we did that both in the exam division and the investment management division. And again, I think we had a moment in time where that was possible and to make some of those reforms. Um, but, you know, it's hard and government doesn't move quickly, as we were talking about earlier, and government is hard to change. We did have a moment post-crisis where we could get real reform done. Uh, in in the book, you also talked about how to build healthy, free functioning markets in the U.S., uh, which will help the Americans better prepare for the next crisis that will inevitably happen. Uh, since you are not in the government right now, do you have any prediction, or, or why will will the next crisis inevitably happen? Why, why well, it- you know, so you're hearing. Look, capitalism's under a lot of attack right now, but again. Indisputably, capitalism has created more wealth for this country and more wealth for the world than any other system. And that's always going to be the case, right? We've had socialist regimes. We've had communist regimes. They might – maybe you support those things because you support certain goals or social justice or something. But those systems do not produce wealth, right? They don't produce economic growth, right? We – you know, you had people – the Soviet Union had to put up a wall to keep people in, right? I mean, so – they're not going to produce growth, right? Our system produces tremendous growth. The beauty of growth is it benefits everybody, right? So the two years of growth under the Trump administration, unemployment is a record low, minority unemployment is a record low, right? It helps everyone. There's no picking this sector, that sector, right? Everyone is doing better in the last two years. Um, And so that growth we need. Now, it does come with the business cycle. So, and believe me, even though we haven't had a recession in 11 years, um, well, I guess spring of uh, 2009, so 10 years, even though we haven't had a recession in 10 years, we will have another one, I promise, uh, because that's how the business cycle works, right? You have growth, uh, and then typically there is some sort of dislocation, and we get a slowing of growth or even negative growth. And obviously, the reason fall of 08 is referred to as the Great Recession is because we actually had negative, you know, almost 10% negative shrinkage of the economy, which is very unusual. I mean, other than the Great Depression, most recessions have not been that severe. So you do have ups and downs in a market economy. They're very healthy because they allow us to grow and benefit everyone. And then there'll be a correction and, you know, things go down. And that's usually works out some excesses and things that have been going on. Now, 
if I knew what was going to cause the next recession, you know, I probably wouldn't be a working lawyer. I would be, you know, a, a multi-billionaire man, a money manager. Um, I do, you know, it's hard. It's always hard to know. Look, we've had very strange events, you know, currency devaluations, different things that have set off problems. Um, I think if I had to identify one thing I'm worried about, it would be the amount of debt. So, you know, the, U- the U.S. government itself is in tremendous debt. So much of what, you know, that debt and the kind of consumer economy that we are driving now, you know, has encouraged individual debt. Um, we're not at the housing level of debt that we were before, although that's kind of creep, you know, heating up a little bit. But we already had some softening in housing. I, I think somehow it will be related to debt. I, but again, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to know exactly how. I mean, think about the fact that interest rates have been artificially low for 11 years. We've never had that in, in U.S. history, so very hard to know what the impact of that is going to be. I suspect that when, we, when something tips us over, it'll somehow relate to debt. Uh, you just mentioned the idea of growth, and I, and I just want to go a little bit deeper on that. Because uh, it seems to, to me that growth doesn't mean tr- technically translate to progress, right? Because I, I, I often ask our guests the, the their definition for the word progress, and because sometimes it puzzles me. Like, aren't we just making the world more complicated and, and digging ourselves into an endless rabbit hole by, you know, innovating ever new regulatory practices and, and financial tools and and like how does that? Do you think it really makes our society a better place by having a more complex financial market and, and more complex regulations? Well, so well, we got to take two pieces there. Um, I think healthy markets and competitive markets and markets where people are experimenting and thinking about things and innovating, those markets indisputably have helped this country achieve what it has in the last 240 years. You know, there's a reason all these companies are here, Google and Microsoft, Apple, right? I mean, you know, these companies aren't springing up elsewhere, right? They're springing up here because both private and public capital is widely available for investment. And, you know, you go to a government-controlled, you know, something like the Soviet Union, right? You got the government making the investment decisions, right? And it's like we were talking about, that's just never going to work, right? It's never going to find the right use of capital. So our system finds the right use of capital and is available for people who want to innovate. So we've got to encourage that. We've got to keep going. That's our only hope for continuing the wealth of this country is to continue to encourage that innovation and that use of capital. As I, as I have argued, you know, in the book and multiple places. Government's best role is out of that, right? Because government's not going to keep up with it. Government's usually going to blunder in and kind of make mistakes. So you want to keep government away from that, maybe some general guardrails, but you want to support innovation in the economy so that we get that kind of growth um, so that people can prosper from it uh, and can make and we can have the kind of growth and wealth that we have here. Awesome. Uh, so you revealed some details in your book about some of the narrowly averted financial disasters and that were never made public. Uh, what were some of those crises? Uh, so t- since we successfully avoided them, doesn't it sort of show that the current si- system also works pretty well? I do think, uh, oh yeah, sure, I know. Look, our system, you know, as they always say, as Churchill said, uh, democracy is the worst except for all the others. Um, so, you know, I think, look, we have a lot of capability here. We have a lot of expertise here. The one thing we're doing is after each crisis, we continue to pile on more regulations. So Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, 
I do. We never go back ever. We never go back and look at those things and cut out regulations. And I just think this accretive amount of regulation, always more regulation, is a very bad idea because that is going to end up gumming up the work so that we cannot innovate, we can't grow. Um, you know, the, the the main one I talk about in the book is a broker dealer that. Uh, you've never heard of because it was kind of behind the scenes of other brokers. It's something called a introducing broker that's sort of the backbone of. So if you see a broker on your storefront here on Nassau Street, that person probably has a broker behind them somewhere that you've never heard of who actually does the transactions and takes care of you know, holding the money. Um, and we did run into one of those that was huge and had some problems with its capital. Um, and we were able to work with them and work with buyers, and we were able to avert the failure of that broker. And it was a time when there had been a number of failures of other brokers, so it was pretty scary. Um, and we were able to work with people and and you know make that not happen. Um, I think that our system does work very well, um, but we've got we can't assume that that continues, right? So we've added all, you know of the Obama administration. I forget how many of the eight years they set the record for rules each, you know, four of the eight years, something like that. And those rules, by the government's own estimation, those are those are hundred million dollar rules. Those are rules that the government estimates will cost the economy a hundred million. They passed dozens of those. Those that money comes out of the economy, right? And that is very scary, right? We need that money in the economy to help people grow, help people advance, help people achieve their goals. So, I do. I do worry about the accretion of all this regulation uh, and what it's going to do to our markets. And again, Hong Kong and London are out there, you know, as financial centers, and they're competitors, and they want the same kind of business that we're after. Uh, and it's so it's we're not we don't have sort of the un. You go back a hundred years, we didn't really have a rival in this, but now we have two. But isn't there a danger of uh, what would people would call the regulatory competition in, in the sense that if Hong Kong and, and UK keep uh, deregulating, that forces the US to deregulate and you sort of going down a spiral and eventually something wrong happens? Oh, uh, if, only, if only we had that problem. Uh, I, you know, no jurisdiction is really deregulating. I mean, you, Got you. Hong Kong and London aren't um, there. It's just the biggest issue we have with Hong Kong and London is it's cheaper there. Um, listing is cheaper there. You don't have the lawsuits against companies that you have here. I mean, frankly, lawsuits against public companies would just sort of become a cost of business to public companies. Facebook would yeah, just settling. Just, every, yeah, all the I time. mean, and so, and they just you know you don't have that in London and, and Hong Kong. So the costs in London and Hong Kong are lower. The re, you know the regulatory regimes are similar. I mean, most most you know it's not that different. The, the problem, the big problem here is cost. Additional regulatory, you know, regulatory complication here, and then, look, being a public company here in the United States is not the fun thing it used to be, right? Ask the Wells Fargo CEO who was, you know, fired about a month ago, right? I mean, he ran afoul of the politicians and he was forced out. And you know, if you're a private company, that doesn't happen. So, it's we need to. This is where this is my point of we got to be careful to make sure that we preserve the health of our markets. Uh, you. Quickly brought up Dodd Frank uh, Act. We didn't get to talk more about it. A lot of the policymakers, the scholars I've talked to, really praise the act for successfully making the market a safer place. It's, the, the system is better capitalized. It's less risky. Uh, you are an opponent of some of the clauses in it. Would you mind talking a little bit about your reasoning? Um, yep, absolutely. So, look, I think even well, certainly, I think its authors would admit that. 
80% of it doesn't have anything to do with the crisis, right? A lot of the things that are in Dodd-Frank were policy ideas that were kind of lying around for many years. And when 2008 came and it was kind of a clean sweep for the Democrats, you know, they poured a lot of things into these bills and they got them passed. They lost, you know, two years later, they lost the House. So that was the end of that. But in in their, you know, in, in, nine, in 2009 and 10, they seized the moment, Obamacare. You know, I mean, the big two a things. Great time. Yeah. yeah, the big two things they did the, that year, those in those two years, was Obamacare and Dodd Frank. Um, Dodd Frank was a lot of policy ideas that just didn't relate to the crisis. They were things people wanted. That's part of my theme of my talk today. Actually, is looking at some of the th- policy ideas that are being floated around now, and you know, what if we had a pendulum shift? Which of those ideas might become reality? So, I think. Most of it didn't have anything to do with the crisis. And again, I just think this piling on of more regulation is about rent-seeking, right? So remember that something like the Financial Stability Oversight Council, right? It sounds great. Oh, we'll look out for you know issues and everything. Well, what did they end up trying to do? They ended up trying to designate certain financial institutions in the United States as systemically significant. Uh, we were able, as I talk about in the book, we were able to fight them off from designating asset managers as systemically significant. But it's that kind of, you know, once they get a hold of you, right, if they designate you, then you're under their thumb and you'll do what they want. And then, you know, the next thing is you have to have this policy or you have to have that policy. Look at Elizabeth Warren's platform right now, right? She wants to skip all this frivolity of the Financial Stability Oversight Council. She wants to say, if you were a corporation and you get too big, you got to get a national corporation license from her. Uh, and folks, once there are nationally licensed corporations, you know, that are under her watch, you know, watch out for all the different requirements that will be passed on those companies, right? So much of the thrust of Dodd-Frank is to get more control over the private economy, more rent-seeking by the government, and ability for the government to tell companies what to do. This relates back to my central thesis, which is we actually need government off these companies and out of these markets. Take the housing market. The housing market crisis of 2008 is a government-created crisis. You can go back and find the laws that encourage lending to people uh, who couldn't afford mortgages. Uh, You can go back and see interest rates held at levels that allow those mortgages. You can go back and look at guarantors of mortgages, Fannie and Freddie, that allow us to have 30-year mortgages here in America. No other country has those, right? But it's because we guarantee mortgages. We were relentless in promoting housing. Well, how did that work out for the millions of Americans who had their homes foreclosed on in 2008, 2009, 2010, had their net worth destroyed, right? We shouldn't be pushing housing, right? We shouldn't be pushing anything. The government should step back and let people make their own decisions. And that's, I do have another book coming out called Mastering Money. uh, And part of the theme there is to help people try to make better decisions on those personal finance decisions so that they can get their own balance sheet in shape uh, and not be subject to these desires of government to get them to buy a house. Buying a house is often a good idea, but it's not a good idea if you can't afford it. Uh, and so people need to regard it as an economic decision, just like any other. Those were some fascinating thoughts because you just, uh, there was a lot to um, talk about. You mentioned how the housing crisis is kind of a government created crisis and uh, Elizabeth Warren's policies, but isn't there sort of a Backlash against, uh, I guess, big corporations, you know, tech giants. How, you know, they're kind of having more market power uh, to control our lives, and that's why the government should step in and regulate them. And it's, you don't agree with this trend of thought. I've watched the government work, uh, and I think we've got a good sample of of history. You know, 
again, I think it was Jefferson, the government's a blunt instrument, right? It's it just the government does not is not able to make subtle changes. And, you know, I, I think when you start talking about government regulating and, you know, you're you're talking about tech companies and financial companies, obviously my expertise is more financial companies, but you know, the more the government gets involved and distorts markets, then the more chance that we're going to have problems, right? So what the, re, you know, the housing crisis, if you say that banks have to lend to people who have less ability to repay, right? Well, you're distorting that market, right? Those people ordinarily wouldn't get lent to, but now they get lent to. The securitization of mortgages, which is one of the things that really brought us down in the fall of 08, that allowed those banks. So now I have to lend to someone who can't necessarily repay. Well, but here's the securitization, and that was a Wall Street, you know, innovation, right? So innovation, like we talked about, can be can have its problems. But all of a sudden, Wall Street comes along and says, you know what? I realize you got to make these loans you don't like anymore. How about securitizing with me, and then they're off your books, right? So I'm a bank. Sure, why not? You know, well now I don't even care what credits I'm looking at when I'm making loans because I'm going to sell them off in securitization, so it's not my problem, right? So. That would be an instance where the government policy is pushing those loans and the market's found a way to kind of react to that and, and deal with it. So my thing would be, let's not have the government push. At all. Let's, yeah, let, if we get them out of pushing, then typically markets work better. So you mentioned the idea of individual responsibility and, and your new book, Mastering Money, which is going to come out this in November. So mm-hmm. it's all about having the personal responsibility. Exactly. So, you know, in chapter 10 of my last book, Going Public, I talked about how government's not going to predict a crisis and your best bet is to strengthen your own finances, make sure you make good decisions, get your own net worth and balance sheet in shape so that when we do have the next crisis, you're fine because you have a six-month reserve for expenses. You haven't bought a house you can't afford. You've saved. You've saved for the things you need, your kid's education, your retirement. Um, And so, what I really try to do in the new book, Mastering Money, is take those ideas, turn it into an entire book, and it's really aimed at younger people entering the workforce. We have a lot of people re-entering the workforce, so workforce participation under the after the crisis had really declined, right? People are staying on the sidelines. You've seen a rise in workforce participation, so we have people getting back into the workforce. We have young people entering the workforce. Book's really aimed at those folks, you know, because the decisions you make early are tremendous in your long-term prosperity. Uh, and it's really a book about financial basics. So cut down on spending, you know, with with computers and apps and phones, you know, I love it. You've seen the stats. You know, what is it? A third of Americans say they can't afford $400 for a car repair. But I bet you they have a phone, and I bet you they have a lot of apps that are giving them an automatic charge every month, some of which they don't even remember anymore. You know, some of the stats show that people have, you know, four to 12 apps charging them, and they don't even remember what it was about. So the first thing in the book is, hey, you got to get the outflow down. You know, you need to cut costs. The second thing is you got to get inflow up, right? So, you know, people are going back to work, which is great. You know, make sure that you improve your skills, get the best job you can, get a job because one job leads to another. So improve your inflow. And then once you get your inflow up and your outflow down, now you've got some network, net income, make sure that you save that and invest that wisely. And the biggest thing there is that young people don't understand the value of 401ks and IRAs. Right away when you enter the workforce, it's the only time that, I, that the government has given you a chance to invest tax-free. Uh, and that's 401ks by your employers or individual retirement accounts that you can open. The beauty of those accounts is you can put money in there, you can deduct that from your income now, and 
you can grow for decades without being taxed. And the power of that compounding without tax is tremendous. So part of my message really to people getting back in the workforce is make sure that you opt in to your 401k. I'm telling that to everyone I can get in front of uh, because that's the way to save and build your net worth. Uh, and if you build your own net worth and have a really good solid balance sheet with an emergency fund on hand, when we do get the next recession, you're not going to get turned out of your house. You're not going to have the kind of problems we had last time. What about the people who are uh, sort of really struggling in life and earning minimum wages? For example, if you're earning $15 an hour, eight hours a day uh, after tax, and you probably don't earn that much, probably $3,000, $4,000 income per month, and minus housing, minus phone plan, you know, electricity, all that stuff. They're, they're really sort of struggle. So, so how, do you, how do we get those people out of the, the struggle? So the, the, the first step is to take the job, right? So, you know, we went through, again, a period of declining participation in the workforce, right? So when you're out of the workforce and you're collecting disability or welfare or whatever, you know, you're going nowhere on that, right? So the first thing is you got to take that step and get into the workforce. Now, you are seeing in you know, well, there's one thing, and I mean, the raising of the minimum wage, right, is going to mean less jobs, right? So we've, you know, all over New York, there are these posters, you know, thanks to New York State, $15 minimum wage goes went into effect January 1st. Well, thanks to New York State, minimum wage went into effect January 1st, and there's tons of empty storefronts all up and down the streets in New York, right? Because when you make labor artificially higher in price, then there's less demand for it, right? So one concern is the doubling of the minimum wage from the federal rate by states, you know, that has an effect of deterring employment. So that's not a good policy step. Um, but you need to get people into the workforce and you need to create lower cost environments. So if I'm someone who is going to enter the workforce in a minimum wage job, I'd move out of New York and New Jersey, right? I mean, these, these are the highest tax states with the highest costs, right? So one of the things is you're seeing a huge migration out of New York and New Jersey into lower cost states, right? So if you are in that situation where, you know, you, you're going to have to take a minimum wage job, to consider where you do that. Because if you go to a lower cost jurisdiction, then to your point, your living expenses are less, but you still get the minimum wage, you should be able to get yourself into a net income positive position. So, um, you know, expenses, the cost of living in New York, New Jersey, you know, some of the high tax states is brutal and it's tough. Mobility in the American workforce is interesting. After the crisis, mobility by workers actually declined, um, and it has started to pick up again. We need to get back to mobility, right? Because you're, you know, a minimum wage job in New York is a tough thing with the cost in New York. So maybe you should move and seek employment elsewhere, right? So we, so mobility in the workforce is important as well, and I think that's one of the things that people have to consider. Uh, before we end the interview, there's a big theme that I think we didn't touch on because you mentioned in your book advice for preventing the next crisis, um, and, and you had this idea of uh, bundling together the SEC and CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trade Commission, uh, and you also were talking about the Financial Stability Oversight Council, the FSOC. Uh, which is sort of bring all the agencies together uh, to have those policy ideas. So it seems that you're big on deregulation, but you, you kind of want to bring more agencies together. Uh, does that mean we're creating a giant regulatory body, or what, what, what's sort of the idea there? Yeah, yeah, the idea there is that right now the regulatory system is so fragmented, right? So 
We have, you know, when they put together the Financial Stability Oversight Council, they had to really squeeze, they, I think in the end they got 10 agencies on there, but some were left out, right? I mean, there are just so many agencies. So I do believe that when you have that many agencies, then you've got the fear of regulatory arbitrage, right? So we've got this agency and that one, and, you know, can I find a way to help, you know, maybe I want to go over here and go over there. I would like to see those a lot of those agencies folded together. Now, you're right, that does, you know, create the prospect of a, more of a super regulator, which I also worry about. But I think the fragmentation of our regulatory system is not a, not it's not getting to a good outcome of of how we should, you know, set up the guardrails in markets. So, I would like to see some consolidation. I also advocate in the book for getting rid of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, or perhaps it's something that comes together during emergency times. But I, I worry about it as a standing body because it has that rent-seeking aspect where it starts to grab companies and then starts to require things with companies. And that's not what we need right now. Got you. Uh, we kind of digress from about Elizabeth Warren. I was very fascinated because uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, uh, Princeton is a pretty conservative place compared to a lot of other institutions, but it's still fairly liberal. So, I mean, it's uh, I mean, how do you th- predict this? I not predict, foresee this. 2020 presidential race coming. I mean, will, will this sort of backlash against you know big tech, big corporations really help someone like uh, Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders um, to to soar to the top? Uh, so I have in my deck today for my talk. I have a slide, <laughs> and it's a it has a picture of me, and then it has a sign does not equal 538. So <laughs> I there's 20 people in the Democratic. Side, I think it would be hard to to predict. I, I do think, look, after big crises, and this was true after the Great Depression of 1929, right? There is always a backlash. You know, oh, capitalism can't do this. You know, why? Right? I mean, this this is not new. What we're going through right now. Um, I think it's important, though, to focus on the benefits of growth of the last two years. You know, our system does go up and down. You're not going to stop that. But look at you know, unemployment, look at wage growth, look at all the things that are, you know, unemployment's down, wage, wage growth is up. Um, you know, that provides opportunity for Americans and that it provides social mobility for Americans to move up and to, you know, find their way, burnish their skills. I'm a huge optimist. I think that if you give people an opportunity, they will get out there and take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, you mentioned, look, there, there may, you know, there's always obviously folks who have difficult things happen to them and we need a social safety net, you know, to, to help those folks. But in general, if we can get people into the workforce and get the economy growing, it provides tremendous opportunity for everyone. Uh, and that kind of fulfillment and the, the prosperity that comes from that, that's the secret of America. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out uh, in this race. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, quickly touch on your personal experience. So, uh, you're currently a partner at Kirkland and Ellis, one of the most notable law firms out there. Some of the uh, famous alumni include Brad Kavanaugh, um, William Barr, who is the current um, um, AG, and then John Bolton, who, who is Trump's uh, national security advisor. So, what's what's the firm like? Um, what's the difference between? Uh, practicing law and, and doing government work. Um, very curious to hear your thoughts on that. So the firm is tremendous and tremendous platform in which to practice law, and it's uh, it's very enjoyable. I think, um, you know, the the 
interesting thing for me, the most rewarding thing for me is that I have been a partner in an investment manager. I've been a senior regulator in the US government, and I've been a law firm partner. That gives me kind of perspectives of all sides of issues. So when clients come and ask about issues, I feel like I can bring all that experience to help them and help them navigate the complex regulatory system that we do have <laughs> in America. Um, and so, you know, I find it very rewarding uh, and, and very satisfying to help people navigate through that. Uh, so it's it's been great. I think that public service also, as I talk about in the book, public service is tremendously rewarding. Um, I think that we do better when people have are able to work on both sides. I think that, you know, if you're in the government, you're enriched by the experiences you had before in the private sector. I think if you're in the private sector, you can bring the government perspective and help people. So I'm a believer that it makes everyone better at what they're doing to see both sides. Um, you know, there are countries where regulars, people go to the regular and that's all they do. Uh, and I think it's hard to to really have that model. I think we, we do much better in the U.S. by having people who have seen both sides and who can help either make better policy, like you know we've discussed, or help companies comply and, and work within the rules. So, so in a way, you're a pretty big proponent of the idea of, I guess, revolving the door. I mean, because people slap sort of a negative connotation to it, but um, we interviewed the CFTC commissioner, Dan Berkowitz, a couple of weeks ago, and he really advocates that people should be able to traverse between private and public sectors because that's uh, that's how you get the best people, right? You, if if someone goes into the public service thinking uh, they can't get out of there one day um, into a better place, then they're just not going to go into public service. So, uh, I I completely agree. Um, I think that if we don't, if we were to restrict ourselves only, you know, to some people doing private or public, you're just losing a lot of knowledge and you're losing a lot of opportunity. And I think that you're much better off if people have seen both sides and, and can move back and forth. And remember, there's lots of, of ethical rules and, and, frankly, there's even you know criminal rules that prevent you from working on anything you worked on while you are in the government. And, you know, the, so there are a lot of rules around it. Um, and I think that we've got good, you know, kind of rails around that. But I think without private experience, it's a very hard to be an effective regulator. Awesome. Uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I have to ask you at the end of the show, uh, what's the punchline here or, or just your biggest takeaway about financial markets, regulation, uh, even practicing law? What's the punchline here? My punchline would be it's all up to each of us. It's an individual uh, game when it comes to financial literacy and financial security. And so as I talk about in Mastering Money, the new book, uh, I really – it's up to each person to make good decisions, to do their best, to build their own personal net worth. Uh, and, see, and that is the route to prosperity in this country. That's a route to security. Uh, policy punchline, don't wait for the government to avoid the next crisis. Do it yourself by building your own net worth. Awesome. Thank you so much for the fascinating insights today, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. So definitely, uh, if you're listening, uh, go get uh, Mr. Champ's book, uh, go, Going Public, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis, and wait for the, the upcoming book uh, that will be released in November, Mastering Money, which will teach you about um, financial literacy and, and how to better take on personal responsibility. Thank you again for coming today. It was great. Thanks for your questions. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please find us on policypunchline.com. Um, follow us on Twitter at Policy Punchline. And uh, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening today.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.